0: Hi, everyone. I'm Leslie Mallon, Head of Public and Capital Markets at Tree. As many of you know, I spend a lot of time following and thinking about sector themes, and we publish a weekly top themes update along these lines. I'm very excited that it is also the time of year for our annual Outlook podcast, but we're doing it a bit different than years past. This year, I'm focusing on perspectives from a few of our senior bankers from across the firm to drill down on some of Liontree's key sector verticals for 2024. This is not inclusive of all of our focus areas, but we'll have some additional conversations at a later date to cover those. For today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Liontree leaders, James Lindsay and Alex Michael, who co-head Liontree's growth business, and Jake Donovan, who is president of Liontree's European business, to get their perspectives on the music and sports industries, as well as the ever-evolving European TNT market. I hope you enjoy the discussion. First up, we're excited to welcome Liontree's resident music expert, James Lindsay to discuss his perspectives on the audio and music industries. Hi, James. Hey, Leslie. Great to see you as always. Nice to have you back in the New York office. You are up first today for our annual Outlook podcast. Are you ready to go?
1: I'm ready to go. And talking to Leslie and talking about music is two of my favorite things. So I'm looking forward to it.
0: Well, <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to focus our discussion on three topical areas today. The changing economics of the music industry, AI in music, a lot of discussion on that, and M&A expectations. So if okay with you, we'll just jump right in. Sound good? Excellent. First, just starting with the changing economics in the music industry. I think it's pretty clear that the current streaming music model needs to be reimagined. The big labels in 2023 really stepped up the narrative on more artist-centric streaming models, arguing that every stream is not created equally. There should be differentiation in economics. Deezer was the first one really to come to an agreement with UMG, which better align royalties with artists that are creating value versus all the noise that's on the platform. And Warner Music Group shortly thereafter joined in as well. I think this is going to be another big theme in 2024 with more of these types of deals and would love to hear your perspectives on this and how you think the deal structures are going to change over the course of the next couple of years.
2: Sure.
1: I think there are two trends in there that you're putting together because they belong together, but they are two separate trends. One is price increases within the industry. And we've seen Spotify and others lead the charge on that. And we'll talk about that. But then the other is, how do you split the pot, right? Which is what you referenced earlier, which has been described in popular culture as this music versus noise debate. If we take a step back, I think one of the thematics that's played out in music is just how long the long tail is or how top heavy music is or how much of a superstar economy it is. And in our year end letter, we sort of referenced some of the statistics around Spotify that has over 10 million artists on platform, but only about a thousand or so make more than a million from royalties on Spotify annually and only 57,000 make over 10K. So I think that just shows there are 10 million artists out there and the gross majority of them are frankly not making a lot of money off the platform. So this whole music versus noise seems to be going against that. It seems to be arguing, well, actually, the superstars should get paid even more So against that backdrop, it seems unusual. And you could see a populist voice screaming out and saying, no, the mechanism for measuring royalties is more efficient than ever. The creation of music is more efficient than ever. The distribution, the marketing, why should we not pay people for what they produce? And why should we penalize? And if you look at the Deezer announcement, because as you said, Deezer and UMG were the sort of pioneers here. The piece that everyone fixated on was that it's only artists over a thousand streams with 500 unique listeners that get paid. But if you look at the other bullets, the next one is boosting songs with active engagement. So it's songs where it's not just a sit back listen, but there's actual active engagement. I think we can agree with that. We have different emotional relationships with different songs. And I pay the same for every song. In theory, every song I listen to on Spotify gets paid the same. But there are some songs that truly move me and make my life better. And there are some that are just there. The next one I think is very important, which is demonetizing non-artist noise, is how they described it. So you could see a place where Spotify say, there are this many hours of listening, but 75% of them are noise, they're rainforest sounds, etc. But we're going to pay everyone equally. And you could see an artist saying, well, this is my craft, and I'm getting paid the same as someone who's just recorded a bullfrog singing in a pond that doesn't seem or,
0: or the other night i had white noise music on all night same concept
1: yeah i will often put white noise on or AI-generated soundscapes. It's a company called Endel that produces these soundscapes for reading or focus or listening. And the reality is I dedicate a large chunk of my listening hours to that kind of noise. And I can see the argument why an artist that truly moves me should get paid more per minute than that kind of music. And it comes back to AI. And for me, the big question is, who owns the AI capabilities? Because in a world where A distributor, a DSP, can use AI to modify tracks and reissue them or to create background noise. And then they look at the listening hours and they say, well, of the 100 hours that have been listened to on platform, 75 of them are sounds that we have created ourselves, whether it's through AI, white noise, or through basically taking existing tracks and modifying them and re-releasing them you start to run into a bit of a tension, right? And that's where it's going to play out. And I think the reason why this has really come to a head right now is because of AI. Music Business Worldwide reported that there are over a million tracks on streaming services that they would describe as fraudulent. And by that, they mean someone has taken a track and sped it up, slowed it down, made modifications of that type, and then reissued it to the streaming platform as a new track. So obviously, technology will sort through that. But that is another part of the problem. And these are references fraud as a reason for their new deal.
0: Right. So at the end of the day, the restructuring of these agreements, who do you see as the winner? Is it the label? Is it the artist? Is it the DSP? Who ultimately is the winner here?
1: I think... The tension is between the label and the DSP and the artist comes along for the ride. It is about the labels defending their ground, which is also the artist's ground. They are fully aligned there against the DSPs because of the fear that the DSPs will have the power technologically to create a lot of audio and a lot of listening that is not artist-centric. And that is fundamentally problematic for an industry where already a lot of artists aren't making a lot of money from recorded music and having to rely on all the other ways of monetizing their fan base to make a living.
0: Right. Touching on the price increase, which you mentioned, there have been price increases across all the platforms last year. And they've also signaled that we may be seeing more in 2024. What's your view on that? Do you think consumers can absorb more price increases for music streaming?
1: I'm pretty bullish on that. And look, first of all, I come from a position of extreme bias where music is very, very important to me. If you were to tell me we're going to play a game where we cancel each one of your subscriptions one by one, first to cancel is gym, don't need that. Second to cancel is video streaming. The one that I really fight to the bitter end is music. And I actually think a lot of people feel that way. But if you think about the fact that video streaming services charge you more generally than music streaming, which we've got comfortable with because video is more expensive to produce than audio.
0: Should that be the case in your mind, though? Relative to video, where would you peg music streaming?
1: I think music is more important to people than video. I think the way music streaming services work, you only need one. Whereas than video, you need multiple. So if I look at it, I care so much more about music than I do about video. Yet I spend significantly less on music than I do on video streaming because on video streaming, I need to have five subscriptions to be able to watch the shows that everyone's talking about. Whereas music, it's a different model. Most platforms have pretty much everything.
0: One other concept just to mention is I think from a price optimization standpoint, we may be seeing more on that front. Warner Music CEO Robert Kinsell highlighted on his call assessing the relationship between say a family plan or an individual plan and is that the right ratio or even in china there aren't family plans yet so it still seems there's a lot of room to optimize the pricing models in general
1: yeah i agree with that i think optimization of the pricing plan and also Music is one of the areas where people have tried to experiment with exclusive early access. will tried to do that with not a lot of success, but what is clear is leading artists can do that. For instance, Taylor Swift will release an album to streaming a week or two after she releases it for sale, knowing that her most rabid fans will show up and buy it because they can't wait the extra week or two before it shows up on streaming which I think is very intelligent. And I think that comes to the same point you're making. But fundamentally, to answer your question, I do think there is definitely scope to increase pricing, especially in developed markets where streaming penetration is pretty high.
0: Moving on to second topic, which would be around AI, and you did touch on this just a moment ago, but there have been some big battles regarding the use of AI in music, which include UMG and other music publishers, their recent lawsuit against Anthropic, as well as the artist's public backlash against the creation of AI-generated songs, but at the same time, music companies are using AI to improve efficiencies. So ultimately, what is your view on the role AI is going to play in music and will it be friend or will it be foe to the industry?
1: I think it will be both. Clearly, when someone is using AI to impersonate an artist and create music in their style, To me, at least, that's clear copyright infringement, and that's not okay. There's been a lot of noise around that. There's been a lot of press coverage around that. I just don't think that's where AI is going to go. What I do think AI can do is make the music production process a lot more efficient. And I've been privileged enough to see demos of people composing a track, putting it into an AI engine, and then just playing around with it and changing it into a different key, speeding it up, slowing it down, changing the instrumentation. I think that's the kind of thing that can happen quite quickly. And to give a very nerdy example, there was a time when people did our job without Excel. And they had to do all the calculations and all the spreadsheets by hand. And what that meant was, you're basically like, there's one case, we're going to run one case, and let's hope it's the right case. Now, I have the flexibility to run hundreds of scenarios and sensitivities and play around and optimize. So I think AI will do that for the music industry. And let's be honest... The music industry has already had a lot of technological disruptions. This one is not that different. It's different in terms of its scope and scale, but it's the same linear progression. So I think we will see that. What's, again, going to be interesting to me is who owns the economics of that? Because right now, when Beyonce puts out a track, I'm listening to that track because of Beyonce and Beyonce alone. But she's sharing credit for that track with 30 musical creators some of whom are true geniuses and deserve to get credit. But then there are a lot of intermediary stages that you could argue AI could do. And then the question is, who gets that delta? So does Beyonce show up and say, well, actually, I'm the one who's driving this sale. And I now don't need a mixer and a producer and a sound engineer and blah, blah, blah. I can have one person and a computer. So I should get instead of 50% of the royalty cut, I should get 75% of the royalty cut. That'll be an interesting thing. And I don't think we've seen how that's going to play out. My hope is that the labels build that infrastructure so they can continue to be at the forefront of serving their artists so that artists can truly get all the benefits of AI. And then economically, that gets spread between the label and the artist.
0: Aside from production, are there any other large bucket areas for efficiency in the process via AI?
1: Well, look, I think AI again, is a term that a lot of people use without really understanding it. AI on some level is just about very, very advanced data analytics and spotting trends in a way that previously we couldn't do. And there is a lot of data on music consumption out there. Over time, that data could be optimized so you can get really good and actionable insights on what kind of music you should be producing, who you should be collaborating with, where you should release your music, where you should Where are you going to get the most engagement if you go on a live tour? So I think there are a lot of things that could be very valuable to artists beyond just the actual production of the music, just in terms of helping direct them that are worth thinking about. And then the other piece that I know a lot of people in the music industry are thinking about is how do you use AI as a tool to increase engagement between fan and artist? Because I can see a world where I can say, well, I love this artist, but I want this kind of music. Or I think about it in a fitness realm, being like, oh, I want to go for a run for half an hour. This is the speed I run at. This is the cadence that I run at. And these are the artists I like. Produce me a running playlist that's going to optimize my running. Same for meditation, same for everything else. So I think there is a way to deepen that relationship between the artist and the fan through AI.
0: So wanted to now move on to our last theme around M&A, which is also area of expertise for you as an M&A banker. The low interest rate environment obviously played a very big role on the escalation of valuation across music. We've seen the majors snapping up independents. You advised WMG on one of those deals in that area not too long ago. What do you think's in store for 2024, especially since a lot has changed on the interest rate front, but the secular trends still necessitate scale? So what's your view and prognosis for M&A activity in the sector this year?
1: First of all, in the catalogue landscape, there have been a lot of new entrants into the catalogue landscape that have driven up prices. And it, as you correctly point out, a lot of that is driven by the real estate environment and looking for yield in a world where it's hard to find yield. We live in a world now where that's no longer the case. So we've seen some of those people retrench. We've seen some of those catalogues now gearing up to come to market and be sold. So I think we'll see a balancing out in the catalog landscape. And what already came to light last year was that the play of just buying catalog and owning catalog was not good enough. You can't just buy it as a financial asset anymore. You need to go out there and optimize how you market that catalog. Variety reported on Robert Kinsel's letter mapping out the next 10 years, and he makes exactly that point. He's like, if we're going to be in the catalog game, we need to market our catalog. We need to put the same energy we put against our front line against our catalog. So I think that dynamic is going to mean that it's a game that not everyone can play because not everyone has those capabilities. So you'll end up having a rationalization where some people will sell out of that world and there'll be less players playing the catalog game. The other trend I look at in M&A is, particularly around the majors, there is a narrative in the music industry of like, oh, the majors aren't what they used to be, we don't need them anymore because people can create music easily, they can market music themselves, they can distribute it themselves, they can plug it in. I think it's naive to count the majors out because they still have an edge. But importantly, I think the majors recognize that they need to capitalize on their strength to stay ahead. And if you go back to the variety piece on Kinsell's 10-year plan, he talks about that. If you look at the language, he says around marketing and engagement with music, he says strengthen marketing of artists, songs, and albums. And that's, you could say, pretty obvious. But the next piece is what really piqued my interest, which is into a sustained competitive advantage. So it's about creating capabilities at the labels that give you a sustained competitive advantage. And in this technologically fluid world, I think a lot of that is going to have to come through M&A. So there are people out there who are innovating in terms of music creation, in terms of royalty recognition, in terms of fan engagement, and all those capabilities need to exist at scale for them to work. So all these startups that are developing really compelling technology, my view at least is that they eventually belong under the umbrella of a major so that they can be disseminated across a broad ecosystem. So I think that we're going to see a lot of catalog M&A this year, but we're also going to see a lot of capability acquiring M&A and technology-driven a
0: Great. Well, I think we covered all of our topics. I did want to round things out, though, with a quick lightning round for you. So three quick questions for you. One, do you think there's going to be an AI-derived megastar at some point in the future? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. Best concert you've ever been to?
1: The best concert I've ever been to was actually Rolling Stones when I was in my early teens.
0: Love that. Last one, Taylor Swift or Beyonce? Eras or Renaissance Store?
1: The beautiful thing about music is I don't have to pick. I love them both.
0: Both? Okay, I'll give you that. Everyone
1: wants to pit them against each other, but they're both fantastic. That's
0: fair enough. Thank you, James. Really appreciate the thoughts on music. Looking forward to catching up with you again soon.
1: Thank you so much, Leslie. This was fun.
0: Alrighty. Bye. Bye. Up next, we're going to shift into a conversation about the sports industry with Lion Tree's Alex Michael. Hi, Alex. How are you doing?
2: Hi, Leslie. I'm well, thank you. How are you?
0: I'm good. I just had a nice chat with James about the music sector and his expectations going forward. And now it's time to shift gears to the sports sector. And who better to talk to than you? Oh,
2: well, we'll see about that. Look forward to it.
0: So there are three areas that I wanted to touch on today. You know, one is the value of sports, two, sports streaming and direct to consumer, and three, the evolving sports viewership and demographic implications. So I hope that sounds good to you.
2: Sounds good. Let's bang it out. Let's do it.
0: 2023 was a big year for sports rights and surging team valuations. Sportico estimated that the global value of sport media rights rose 24% year over year to record highs. I think it was about 56 billion. So as a very open-ended question to start, do you think we're in a sports valuation bubble or are the level of increases supportable and will continue?
2: Yeah, that's a good question, Leslie. I think that you can't look at all sports as the same when answering this question. I think as we look at it in Liontree, there's the buckets of core, at least big American sports, baseball, basketball, hockey, football. We can talk about soccer a little bit and with Major League Soccer. And then there's up and coming properties of all sorts, big and small. And I think for where the pinnacle sports like the NFL, really, NBA, and then some more baseball, NHL. I think they're in a pretty safe space as it pertains to the value of these teams, because those team valuations have largely been underpinned by the revenue increases for these leagues and for the team revenues. And if you look at the valuations, the multiples by which they're valued, largely high single digits, of revenue, those multiples have stayed fairly the same over this period, is that you've seen such a dramatic rise in media rights and thus the revenue of these enterprises grow dramatically and thus their enterprise value. There's someone like Steve Bomber, when he pays 2.2 billion or whatever for the Clippers several years ago, it was way out of whack where teams had been valued, but that was largely looking backwards. If you give him full credit, he was prescient about where team revenue was going, and that was largely tied to media rights. And so, it has caught up to that and surpassed it. We've seen trades now—a cluster of trades in the NBA, for example—at four billion. The NFL has the same phenomenon. I think you have to track the media rights because the media rights will tell you if this is a bubble. So far, there has been nothing that dissuades you from believing that media rights will continue, especially for that top end marquee sports league. It's the other leagues that are each have to be treated differently as to where they are going. And will they ever see the media rights from the broadcasters in the linear world that really has underpinned that huge media right growth for the core sports. And so I kind of look at it like that to the question of it's a bubble. I think you have to look at each sport for the best and brightest of the leagues, the core ones. It's probably not, honestly, as long as you believe in the rights landscape, continuing to ascend and we can talk about whether we do. But for the other ones, I think it's hard to really underwrite massive media gains given the fracturing media landscape, streaming and stuff we'll
0: talk about. Speaking of more premium rights. Negotiations for the NBA's media rights are set to begin this year, and according to Forbes, the league's rights will more than double and possibly even triple from the $2.6 billion that Disney and Warner Brothers Discovery pay each year. So how much do you think the rights are most likely to go for this time around?
2: It's hard to truly know, and they're going to try to split up the package, I think, in more ways than Perhaps they have ever done before, which the NFL has been an absolute master about, whether it's Thursday, Fridays, new bonus Thanksgiving games. I think the NBA will dip into that and streaming clearly affords an opportunity to diversify how you present this content and the type of packages you can do. So whether it's two or three times, I think the only thing I'm safe to believe in is that it will be a market appreciation. And thus, back to the first question, I think that will support some of these big values that we're seeing in recent team deals. Although you've seen some sellers, these are informed people, Mark Cuban, Mark Lassery come to mind in particular. Are they seeing any cracks in that rights increase? I'm not sure. I think there's some specifics to their individual cases that led them to just make this deal happen at these values, which is enormous value. But regardless, I think the rights will have a profound increase. And Leslie, this will be the last major rights package. And we just saw some WWE news today, but this will be the last major rights package of one of these premier sporting leagues for a while. Not talking about local stuff, but true national all encompassing rights deals. So we won't know the bubble question to a certain extent, I think, until we see what happens in five years when another raft of rights is up. But this will be the last one of real significance, and I expect it to be a profound step up, as just mentioned.
0: Who do you think would be the most likely winning bidder for this asset?
2: I think it's impossible to handicap. I think if I'm the NBA, I want to have a lot of winners. I think you have to find the audience where they are increasingly and make it as easy as possible to consume this content, especially regular season content. I think you do have overall a kind of Goldilocks for sports rights right now in terms of you still have the incumbent big legacy media guys, the Warner Brothers of the world, Comcast, And then you have a growing streaming group with big pocketed tech, obviously Amazon, which is in the news with the recent RSN deals with Diamond. Google now has gotten their feet wet with Sunday Ticket, which seems to be a success. You clearly have Apple, what they did with MLS. So this is a great situation if you have premier rights.
0: It was this perfect storm that we've had with the tech players, the traditional networks, and newer players coming in. And there's a lot of cash that's moving around. But we also, at the same time, are seeing traditional broadcasts pulling back and being more focused on profitability. So will this perfect storm continue? That's a question that I would have or be worried that we'd start to see less tension as it relates to some of these media rights. So would be curious to hear your perspective on the sustainability of that perfect storm, per se.
2: Yeah, I think right now we have a situation that the cup is flowing over. You have eight to 10 legitimate bidders for these rights. And That's where we are in this moment, and that's what the NBA is operating in. So so really, this question is about in three, four, five years, as this system continues to feel its way out and linear continues to erode, where are we in terms of that competitive tension? It's hard not to be optimistic that there are at least a handful of players, if not more. Leslie, you were with me when we were speaking with Ari Emanuel. He said, he went through the list just as we have and said, I don't see any of that going away. But let's say a lot of it went away. All you really need is his quote, one bidder and the perception of another. If that's the case, we're more than okay in terms of having competitive pressure. But it's hard to imagine you don't have at least a handful, even with further consolidation in the media and tech landscape. So I think the biggest fear perhaps is that the tech guys lose their interest or they get what they need out of these rights on the early side. then have too much power in the ecosystem and then actually exert that power on the content supply. That's something I could see down the road. But you still should have other forms of media and even combatants amongst themselves. I'd imagine in four or five years when the next wave Is it feels pretty healthy to me.
0: Overall, well, pretty bullish, it sounds. One other area I suppose of rights is more on the college side. College athletes have seen increased demand for their own name image likeness NIL rights. I've seen some estimates that the NIL landscape surpassed a billion in value in 2023. Assuming this will continue to expand rapidly, how will this impact the sports media industry at large?
2: So a few things, Leslie, I think the college area is absolutely fascinating. It's a bit of a Wild West now, given all the recent rule changes and the lack of really standardization across the states, given there's no real governing principle of how college and college athletes are being paid and treated. And it's fascinating. On the media rights side, we've obviously had big checks go to these conferences. It's led to a shifting of Who's even in a conference, we all know the story pretty much of what's happened with the Pac-12 and its demise because essentially the TV dollars for the other conferences and the resultant payments to the teams just became overwhelming in light of the Pac-12 not having its own version of that mega deal. And so the media rights are a dramatic part of the story in the organization of at least college football that will continue. And I think you're going to get to a point where you have further consolidation. And listen, this is my big hot take that I think is a little differentiated, but you kind of see it, which is I think the biggest potential threat to the NFL is the college football game becoming the NFL.
0: Wow, we've heard it here first. Okay.
2: Right here. We did it. I think that's what I'd be scared of. There has been a 100-year detente and respect for the various worlds of college and amateur and the NFL. Literally, they built that way. That's why the NFL plays on Sunday. That's why college plays on Saturday. They very much respect and align against their individual rights and opportunities. But now that these athletes are getting paid, and this is becoming a bigger part of the university system, I do see a world where, for football at least, that these teams, and these programs are carved out almost fully from these universities, or at least at arm's length, and they organize themselves as essentially professional league, which they're really becoming. And if you look at this country, I think people don't fully appreciate that after the NFL, it's really college football is the premier content, not NBA, MLB, NHL, et cetera. It's college football in terms of rights dollars and in terms of following. We're already playing with the limits of what constitutes being colleges, these athletes. You have people who have played now, I think I just saw a record like ninth year of eligibility. This isn't a college endeavor in terms of a student pretty much anymore, especially since now people can transfer after one semester. It's not about the continuation of a college education in a certain setting. And so why not rip off? every Band-Aid, constituted as a mega league with the SEC and the Big Ten, get as much dollars into it, and it's capitalized externally, potentially, which we've already seen some experimentation with, like Florida State was entertaining this as funding the football program separately with outside capital. I just think maybe not in three years, but in 10 years, could you look up and say, well, there's the NFL and there's college football and they're actually head to head. And their pipeline of talent, actually, if, if people are making commensurate amount of the money, especially at certain positions that are potentially conceived as less valuable, than I felt like running back, that popularity at the college level may get them paid more at college. And they may stick around for seven years versus go to the NFL. So I think you're going to have that tension in terms of the talent evolving into the NFL, let alone rights competition. Again, that's a very strong take, but there's definitely going to be some friction on the edge of what
0: you're already starting to see. Key. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a key theme to watch out for. So let's move to our second topic, really on streaming and direct-to-consumer for sports. Reach has been a key reason for sports leagues to want to distribute over broadcast networks for streaming. But it was notable that two of Amazon's Thursday night football games broke into the top 100 U.S. telecasts in 2023. And at the start of this year, the NFL, for the first time ever, exclusively live streamed a playoff game on Peacock. And that as well hit a new record for the most live stream event in U.S. history, averaging 23 million viewers. So how material do you think these streaming milestones are for sports? And do you think it'll dramatically change the trajectory of sports shifting to streaming?
2: I think there's a trade-off building in the ecosystem of essentially reach versus rich.
0: The two R's.
2: And you're seeing this in the NBA at the local. You see teams like the Suns giving away bunny ears and antennas to over the air because the cable system is breaking down. I think that's going to continue to be at the heart of what goes on here, that our sports of the 20th century, the biggest sports, boxing, is a quintessential example of horse racing. They made the decision to be rich and to make it narrow versus embrace. TV and go broad and be on broadcast, which the NFL did amazingly. Now, they all had reasons why they did that, which we're not going to get into here. But I think you do run a risk of these sports closing that aperture and doing it for the biggest dollars today, but then hurting your audience and your abilities later. And I think that trade-off is really, really settling in as you talk about streaming versus broadcast, linear is a weird in-between. We're in this moment of determining what's best for the health of these sports. And I think it's not all created the same. Again, the NFL can do this. It is so sought after that people will just break through the glass to get to whatever service is offering the game. And there are not that many games and they will find it and they will consume it because it's just neat to have. I'm not sure you have the reaction with virtually anything else. And so you almost have to treat NFL and maybe college football different than the other sports. But that tradeoff will exist at all sorts of levels, local, national, different packages. The streaming element is just becoming more and more ingrained. The pandemic was an accelerant. So the behaviors are there. People understand it. There's always a lag, but we're really getting comfortable with it. The services are going to keep consolidating and eventually we're going to look up and streaming is going to be like cable and essentially replace it. And people will know what to do with that. It feels a little novel. It feels like a trade off now, but it's just behavioral shifts that are already in the making and were accelerated by the pandemic.
0: Right. I'd say one other big area of friction of moving to streaming, at least from the consumer standpoint, is the fragmentation of sports across different platforms. And fans don't know where to go to see different games. And it's very expensive to subscribe to all the services to watch what they want to watch. So how does the industry solve this issue? And is there a path to a more robust sports streaming bundle, which we've been talking about for some time?
2: Yeah, I think there's going to be, first of all, I think ultimately there'll be more consolidation in streaming. So the fact that there are nine services or whatever, and some have pieces of different packages, I think that will work its way out as the business has less and less choices and they're all aggregated within these mega tentpole services, whether it's Amazon or Max or whatever it ends up being. Obviously, today we're seeing different attempts at Apple trying to wrap its arms all the way around MLS is trying to solve that for the league as in a part of this is where you go just to consume soccer content. We'll see if that's a success. We have to see if soccer content can withstand that essentially and not have that reach versus rich trade off. where I don't think they had that many different opportunities in terms of the media rights. But it may hurt them in the long run not to have wider reach, even though we all know that Apple is a massive, massive channel. We're in a bit of a wild west in terms of where to find the content. I think it's going to get easier. People are going to experiment. I think you're going to have a few winners and it'll kind of work its way out. But you also have trends where people don't care that much about the live games to begin with. So then it's about finding the highlights or stories about the players or documentaries. Like just the consumption pattern amongst generations is going to change as well. And so that will play into how big a deal this fracturing of the actual live content is.
0: So, Alex, I wanted to touch on Netflix, which you had mentioned before. They've obviously taken a more conservative and less expensive approach to sports, focused more on content, dramas around sports, and we all know they've had huge success with Drive to Survive and the Beckham docuseries. But now with the WWE announcement, would you be surprised to see Netflix change their tune and dive more into live sports in the near term or foreseeable? feature.
2: I see it as an absolute transition. And I think, Leslie, what's important about this WWE news and just the direction of going with live sports is that you have to appreciate that there is an ad opportunity here. We knee-jerk think of Netflix, of course, as subscription, 5.98, 6.9, whatever it's become, 11.9. But they are, of course, very focused on the ad-supported tier. The ad-supported game is a different exercise than it is the subscription game. You need to have concurrent audiences, you need to fill inventory. This live sports, as we know in the linear and broadcast world, is the number one way to drive that audience and to fulfill advertisers' interest. I think what's behind the live sports push is in fact this push for ad-supported business for Netflix, which they see as really an uncapped opportunity, whereas there is some ceiling probably for the subscription world than the number of subscribers. So this ability to have that type of content that brings everyone into the same funnel and then they can monetize not over in the subscription business, six months, nine months, whatever people get to these streams. And it's pretty asynchronous, but all at one time, they can get new advertisers, they can get a premium. And I think that's why I would bet on more and more live sports on Netflix, because it's essential to the ad supported tier. So that's what's really at the heart of this push. And I see no reason why it will abate
0: jumping into our last topic area which deals with viewership and demos over the last 10 years sports fans have barely aged but tv viewers have aged by almost 15 years so fans and especially younger fans are engaging in sports in different ways via highlights you mentioned that before as one example so how can sports evolve to capture more value from the younger demo
2: you see a variety of attempts. clearly what baseball did with the rules changes in order to speed up the game, less time between pitches, bigger bases. Those were an attempt and appreciation that you can't stick with tradition to reach new audiences or have them engage more. And I think that was squarely aimed at this question, Leslie, and I think to good results if we've seen the numbers on the past baseball season. So I think there's changes you can make with the gameplay itself, in order to make it more entertaining and engaging with younger audiences, which you need to do. There is clearly a grain of the core audience of the premier sports. Gameplay changes, again, finding ways to connect where they are, not have them come to you and also offer products and content that resonates. I think that's why you're seeing the Manning cast, but you'll see a whole variety of different ways to portray games in the future. The Nickelodeon showing cartoons over gameplay. People want to consume it in a much more individualistic way than they ever have. We haven't changed the format by which we present these games in decades, and this is really all in the last few years, which streaming has enabled. And streaming will enable more breakthroughs and make it less the one to many, but perhaps the many, or at least some to many, that I think will hopefully engender a new range of audiences and also taste shifts. That's why I think MLS is pushing on value because soccer is generally a bit of a younger sport and younger following and some of the up and coming leagues, whether it's lacrosse or ultimate fighting and pro fighting league, which we worked on. So. I think each sport will have a different challenge, but I think it's about finding the younger audience where they are and giving them content, whether it's the live gameplay or derivatives in a way that resonates with them and finding the channels for that. It'll be interesting, but there's no question that we are dealing with a audience crisis, I think, that will be years in the making, but has already obviously been years in the making and will have to be rectified somewhere. And that's what we also are very intent on here at Tree, Youth Sports, because obviously that's the feeder to fandom and how the leagues interact and how the sports interact with younger players is going to be essential.
0: Well, that's great, Alex. I do really appreciate your thoughts and perspectives. But before I let you go, I have three lightning round questions for you. They do all deal with sports. Number one would be, what is your favorite Olympic sport?
2: For some reason, swimming's coming to mind. I wouldn't have gotten there. but <laughs> yeah. uh,
0: Take that. I used to
2: live near Katie Ledecky. I just think we've had some interesting characters and performances there.
0: Okay, swimming what sport do you do in your free time
2: fantasy football does that count
0: we'll take it what is the last sports event that you attended
2: formula one in vegas
0: nice that's a good way to end it
2: thank you leslie so nice seeing you always fun well
0: thanks very much alex good to see you
2: take care bye
0: bye while sports and music continue to dominate on a global scale Next up, we're going to focus on what we can expect in the European TMT market over the next year with Lion Trees, Jake Donovan. Hi, Jake. How are you?
3: I'm very good, Leslie. How are you?
0: Doing well. You are last for today, but don't tell James and Alex this. I saved the best for last so
3: (laughs) we may just prove that theory
0: we've talked about music and sports and certainly thematically this crosses over into europe but i wanted to spend some time delving into some key european tmt themes with you so the three areas that i picked are number one consolidation trends and if we're on the cusp of some major deal activity the Netco versus ServCo trend. And lastly, areas of investor interest, including PE's focus on infra assets. So let's just get started. If that's okay. Sure. Great. On the consolidation and MA theme, it certainly seems like we could be on the verge of a major consolidation wave in Europe. Both the Vodafone Hutch deal in the UK, the Orange Mass Mobile deal in Spain have both yet to be approved. The recent offer that Iliad made to merge with Vodafone in Italia, that would make three pending deals. And Vivendi, I also understand is considering options for its stake in TIM, including a sale. So what does your crystal ball say about these deals getting done, what the regulator is going to do, and are some more likely than others to get done? Or do you think it's gonna be an all or nothing situation at the end of the day.
3: Well, obviously, as an MA practitioner, I'm hopeful that this is the beginning of a tidal wave of consolidation in Europe. And if it were to come to pass in its entirety, we would essentially be moving from largely four-player markets to largely three-player markets in wireless. That would be the ultimate conclusion of the markets that you mentioned. And then A few others that also have similar four-player attributes such as France or the Nordics. That's the dream. That being said, I've been in Europe now for more than 20 years, and it's been a long-held dream that has yet to come to fruition. And if anything, what we've historically seen in the European environment is one step forward and at least a half a step back. In the sense that when regulators have approved consolidation, they've typically demanded a remedy package, which more or less reestablished a level of competition that was similar to that which existed prior to the consolidation. So as an example, in Italy, when Hutch and Wind came together, that essentially was the reason that Iliad entered the Italian market via the remedy package that was a condition to the approval of the four to three. So essentially we went from four to three in Italy and then back to four. And that's been the history of Europe. This focus on a consumer at all costs, and that spreads across all areas of regulation, whether it be open access unfixed, which obviously doesn't exist in the US. The MPO regulation, number portability, and the remedy packages in consolidation so it's a fairly consistent theme that being said if we look at the glass half full perspective it does feel as if things are changing and the reason they're changing are probably at least a couple that i can think of quickly one is the trend of convergence we're largely complete in europe and we can talk about the parallels to the us if interesting but in europe you've seen essentially in every market the standalone mobile operators combine with the standalone cable or standalone fiber operators in a convergence move that essentially replicates some of the capabilities of the incumbent and then allows bundle propositions to be made to consumers. So what we saw in some European markets is that as the larger players, typically the top two, the incumbent and the challenge conversion operator started to push convergence more heavily, that put pressure on the number three and four wireless only operators to a degree that the regulator felt that consolidation may be warranted. The best example of that is Holland. Where we saw a remedy free consolidation approved between T Mobile and Teletu, essentially because it was deemed that there was sufficient competition from the conversion operators, Vodafone Zigo, who had come together, and KPN, the historical converged incumbent. So that's one trend. Does the increase in convergence in Europe allow the regulator to consider wireless only operators at a disadvantage and therefore permit? consolidation without substantial remedies. And Spain's a good example of that where it's a highly convergent market. And when you look at the orange Mobile proposed transaction, you could argue that there's enough convergence already in the market to warrant that combination to happen with limited remedies. We don't think it'll be zero remedies, but certainly limited remedies. That's one theme is happening. And then the other one, is around overall investment levels with 5g there has been i think a greater understanding by the regulator that the return on capital has declined so much as to potentially jeopardize further investments not only in 5g but whatever may come beyond that i wouldn't necessarily say we're at a failing firm argument point but there's no doubt that there's a greater appreciation of the potential risk of diminished return on capital leading to reduced investment leading to reduced competitiveness of european telecoms in particular vis-a-vis the u.s
0: and the consumer certainly would lose in that scenario as well
3: although just anecdotally as a parent of children who went to high school in europe and had european mobile contracts and now go to university in the u.s they pay more than double for the same service in the U.S. So <laughs> I don't think there's any lack of competition in Europe right now.
0: So it sounds like a little bit of room for optimism looking ahead there. Outside of telecom How would you then characterize the regulatory environment in the UK and Europe heading into this year? We've seen several large transactions, namely Adobe's Figma, Amazon iRobot, both held up by European regulators recently. So do you expect, looking outside again, these telecom markets that we just discussed, regulators being more accommodative to deal making in general across Europe or in TMT more broadly? It's a good question.
3: The media space is an interesting one where there have been a number of attempts, notably led by Bertelsmann RTL, to consolidate the traditional free to air broadcast markets in Holland in in France and elsewhere, projects have been examined. And the theory was that the traditional definition of the broadcast advertising market was too limited, recognizing the over-the-top players and the direct-to-consumer internet. Unfortunately, the regulator, and this is as recent as a year or two ago, has blocked all attempts at consolidation in the broadcast space, largely by refusal to expand the definition of the advertising market. So they're still looking at smaller verticals, the broadcast advertising market, the radio advertising market, the print advertising market, as opposed to a view that what we're dealing with is something far more converged, really. And the players like Facebook and Google and others have a substantial advantage even against a combined broadcast platform. So that is not very promising, although hope never dies. And we certainly hope that regulator thinking on what market definition will evolve. And I would say there was a view that Brexit would enable a more front-footed regulatory policy in the UK. We haven't seen that to date. If you look at the CMA rulings, If anything, the UK regulators post-Brexit have been more aggressive, I don't mean aggressive in a positive sense, I mean aggressively against consolidation, certainly than the US, but even some of the European positions. And I'm thinking about Microsoft Activision is probably the most notable one there. So we'll see. Right now, I would say it's difficult to see reasons for broader optimism outside of the wireless space. But there is a consistent and active education effort underway. We are living in a global marketplace and certainly being an outlier against consolidation has cost Europe the creation of not only domestic champions, but European champions and arguably global champions. So there is a price to this position, which hopefully will be assessed as we move forward.
0: Just want to ask one other question along these lines, and it's more so related to some of the geopolitical tensions that are out there, especially as it relates to the Middle East. But there has been some Middle Eastern telecom companies more active in Europe, Saudi telecom group (STC) and UAE's both spending, I think it's about 5 billion euros, if I'm not mistaken, in four deals in Europe over the last year. So number one, I'd be curious to hear your perspectives on what their investment case is, first of all, and what opportunities they see. And secondly, how do you feel that some of the current geopolitical environment may impact any future levels of investment?
2: So
3: I guess on the first point, There's no doubt there has been a relative cost of capital advantage coming out of the Middle East, looking at any sector that has been offering yield, in particular as interest rates have gone up. So you have cash rich sovereign wealth funds or cash rich sovereign controlled corporates, such as the telcos you mentioned, extremely low cost of capital. And historically, these groups, the diversification they had done had been more East or South, so into Africa or into Asia. I would argue that their timing has been relatively interesting in the sense that as rates have gone up, as the cost of capital advantage has become more clear, they've moved into European assets. Not everything has gone smoothly. If you look at the share price development of Vodafone from the time of the original investment, but- In a long-term context and over the cycle, when you look at the valuation levels at which these investments have been made, there's reason to be optimistic about the future. So it's certainly a cost of capital question. There's a risk diversification question for these groups where, as I mentioned historically, they'd invested in higher risk markets and Europe is perceived as a lower risk area. And then there's the opportunity for synergies between the groups. So as an example, EAN and Vodafone have signed a relationship agreement that we'll see the two groups working together to try to optimize synergies across the platform. So that sort of explains the why. Europe, when you talk about where we may go from here, the world is definitely a more protectionist place than it has been at previous points in the cycle. And Europe is not immune from those trends. What we are seeing Nearly without exception are investment limits in almost every European telco that either explicitly or implicitly require regulatory and government approval for substantial ownership by foreign entities. So although we do believe that Middle East and other capital will continue to be invested in European communications, it's going to take time. It's going to have to be measured and it will need to come with government approval. Now, frankly, that's no different from the U.S. The U.S. has always been taking this view on strategic sectors, and it doesn't mean that foreign investment can't happen. It just means that it has to be welcome. So, I think it will continue, but it'll be measured.
0: Moving on to number two, the topic of Netco and Servco, an increasing number of companies have been separating their business into Netco or call it Infraco, Towerco, Fiberco, which looks after the network operations and Servco, which is really servicing customers. So first of all, what's the rationale driving this trend? You just start there. Yeah.
3: So the rationale is a few points. One is clearly a perceived valuation arbitrage vis-a-vis the public market. So essentially the public markets are valuing aggregated infrastructure assets, in this case communications assets, at multiples that many believe do not represent the sum of the parts value that can be achieved in private markets. So what we've seen in Europe, probably even more so than the U.S., but in the U.S. as well, is a steady flow of partial or complete divestitures of infrastructure assets by the larger integrated companies. And so this is towers, fiber, data centers, submarine, cable, etc. And the deals have either been complete divestitures, minority stakes to highlight the value, or an interesting trend that's definitely taken off in Europe where we're seeing JV structures to essentially off-balance sheet CapEx. So certainly when you think of what's driving the NetCo-CerveCo question, it's really the same thing that's driving the infra investment wave and that's value arbitrage and the value arbitrage one could argue that it happens because the payback and duration of the investments in the infra assets is extremely long and not to criticize public markets in any way but sometimes the patience of the public markets is just not there for these long-term investments With payoffs that are not certain because the payoff is not necessarily a regulated guaranteed return. And when it is regulated, regulation changes. You could argue that to date we haven't seen the premium pricing of superior technologies as they are delivered. And in fact, in Europe, in many instances, speeds and capability of product has improved and prices remain relatively constant. So there's been a debate about the payback of these investments. But what we've seen is the private investor universe of infra funds and P willing to take that long-term view and have that long-term belief and therefore pay values that are well in excess of what's available in the public market. The Netco Circle is the most extreme example because powers, fiber, data centers, et cetera, are smaller pieces of the whole. netco SurfCo is the whole. It's basically taking the entire company and breaking, as you said, into the infrastructure component and the customer Business. And there are some flavors of Netco, SurfCo. So some Netco, Surfco would argue that the RAMco within the business, so i.e., the mobile spectrum and the active mobile equipment, belong in Netco. Others argue that it belongs in Servco. And so there's some debate underway as to what is the perfect model. We saw in Italy this year the first large scale example following the Danish transaction years ago, whereby a private investment group partnering with the state is going to be buying the fixed line network of Telecom Italia. And the Remainco, which will be the listed entity, will have the customers and the mobile network and obviously a deep wholesale relationship with the netco.
0: Have you seen data to support that this arbitrage has been successful or is it too early to tell?
3: It's a good question. There's no doubt that the multiples achieved for the infra assets, towers, fiber, data center, et cetera, or that has been achieved in Italy for the Netco are superior to the average multiple of an incumbent. So there's no question about that. A different question is where will the Servco trade over time? Of course, the Italian transaction hasn't closed, but it's going to be the first example where we will have a mark to market. So post-closure, we will have a market price for Servco and we'll have a historical transaction price for Netco. It will be very clear. And we can then compare that against the average incumbent multiple in Europe. And there'll be a very clear view as to whether there has been or hasn't been value creation perhaps a little early to judge because there's still some uncertainty about closure and there's some important conditions to be resolved. There are certainly arguments on both sides as to whether it creates value or not. So I think we should wait, look at the evidence, and then we'll have a good view.
0: To be determined. We'll talk yeah. about that maybe next year. You had mentioned that a number of telcos have created JVs off balance sheet to roll out fiber, what have you. How do you see this playing out for companies over the long run once private equity firms need to exit? Will you see telcos relever to gain control back of the networks? How do you see this proceeding over time? What we don't
3: know is, at least in Europe, there was a whole wave of the mobile businesses being listed as a carve And the reason they were listed was because of a perceived value arbitrage and to raise capital to deploy ever expensive evolutions of mobile equipment. Without exception, all of those have been undone whether it was Telefonica Moviles or Orange Mobile or a number of other ones, they've all been undone. Much like in the utility sector, when renewable assets were carved out, they've all been reincorporated back. So we could see that trend. We could see that the fact that the infrared trend was temporary financing driven, arbitrage driven, and when the financing needs have been met and the cash flows are coming at the end, and there's no longer as much of a valuation arbitrage because the markets are able to value more appropriately a cash flow asset as opposed to a capex asset. We could very well see these assets reincorporated. That's definitely a scenario. Whether there's a transitional phase of a listing and then a re-merger or it's a direct buyout, we'll see. But we'll also have opportunities to determine whether customer-only assets can thrive. To date, we don't have a lot of examples of customer organizations. We had those for a while. Those were, say, an Iliad or a Teletu or others, but they actually ended up going into infra. (laughs) Whether we'll simply end back where we started, which is not unusual, Time will tell, but it hasn't been without logic. You have a massive CapEx wave required for fiber. The public markets don't have the appetite to fund it. You're finding essentially cheaper capital externally to do it. And then once the journey is over and cash flow is flowing out of those networks that have been built, they may very well be better suited in public markets and maybe reincorporated. So I wouldn't rule it out.
0: So just moving on to our last theme and some of these overlap a little bit, but related to the amount of capital that's been going into infrastructure, I've seen a stat that there's still about 350 billion of dry powder for infrastructure fund managers, a lot of capital. So, so should we expect to see continued capital flowing very aggressively into these assets? How much more of an opportunity is there into this asset class?
3: It feels like there's more to come. And I would argue it's not just telco. If you think more broadly about the state of the balance sheets of most governments in the world today, you could argue it's like an over levered telco. So the government should be investing not only in fiber and wireless, but in highways and energy transition, et cetera, et cetera. And it could very well be that a lot of that capital will come in the form of public private partnerships. For the same reason, you're essentially off balance sheet, you take the liability off balance sheet to the capex off balance sheet, the heavy investment phase comes from external cheaper capital, and then it's reincorporated later. So we could see that. But specifically with regard to telecoms, I would say we're probably halfway along the journey, maybe a bit more, a lot of the easier transactions have happened. But the next phase, which could be enormous, would be, let's say, an acceleration of the netco surf trend. Because once you take it to that level, we're talking billions and billions. And another area, which is really interesting, I think, is this whole Ramco question spectrum and mobile well, spectrum and active equipment. Is that an infra asset or not? If it is infra asset, there's an enormous asset pool that could be invested in there as well. We have seen interest rates move up. So the cost of capital of infrafronts has increased somewhat. So we'll see how that all shakes out. But my sense is given the dry powder, the public market valuation levels, which remain subdued, I think we'll see more. And I believe it will spread into additional areas of infra.
0: Last question would be more around the asset managers or infra asset managers. Just in early January, BlackRock announced it's going to buy global infrastructure partners for over $12 billion. That makes it the second largest manager of private infrastructure assets. Is this another expected ripe area for M&A looking forward to see more consolidation here?
3: Yeah, well, obviously so have to separate out the sovereign from the non-sovereign. So within the infra investor pool, there are substantial quasi-sovereign pension fund control investors the australians or the canadians but there's also a number of smaller funds and so i would imagine that we'll see a continuation of the trend of either pe creating infra or as we sell in the case of blackrock acquiring infra but it feels like it's a very attractive long-term stable and large asset class that any asset manager ought to have in their quiver
0: Jake, thank you so much for your thoughts and perspectives. Sounds like there's a lot going on in Europe. Let's hope so. Really appreciate your time. But before I let you go, I do have a quick three-question lightning round for you. So number one, this is more related to currency, so not maybe as fun. But right now, one euro equals 1.09 US dollar. At the end of the year, will the euro be higher or lower relative to where it is right now to the dollar? Lower. Okay. What is your favorite country to ski in in Europe, since I know you are an avid skier? Austria. And lastly, what is your favorite local streaming TV show? And by local, I mean Europe.
3: So I would call out probably two platforms more than shows, but there's a platform called MUBI, M-U-B-I, which is absolutely phenomenal, long tail, very curated content based in london and another one actually based in spain called film in f-i-l-m-i-n so if you're getting sick of the usual hollywood blockbusters and looking for some high quality exotic content i recommend both platforms they are extraordinary
0: excellent i will check them out and much appreciated again thanks so much jake
3: very good thanks leslie bye take care Ciao.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Lion Tree's 2024 Outlook podcast as we navigate what is sure to be an exciting year. We hope these insights give you a sense of what to expect in these pivotal industries. There's more to come over the next few months, but for now, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the discussion.